Well, hello friends and welcome here, both those who are joining us in person and also those of you who are joining us uh, online on YouTube or on uh, Telesoptic TV channel 878. So we welcome you uh, into this space. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And this week, we had a little bit of excitement in our home, not in the good excitement kind of way. We had, uh, we've discovered a water leak in our basement. And so we set about trying to figure out what this might mean and look like. So my mind immediately went to a crack in the foundation, which is a big problem. Uh, however, so I pictured us digging up the whole of the backyard and the side yard and figuring out, I even got a friend to come over with a pickaxe to do some exploratory work. And uh, I thought we need to get this solved for the winter rains. But thankfully, uh, a good friend who came over uh, got it sorted. We tore apart a corner of our basement and we found out it was an inside leaky pipe and not a leaky foundation. But what that meant for me is that this whole week, as I've been looking into our text that we're going to look at this morning, I've been thinking about home and house and foundation, and I've had a new appreciation for home's foundations and stability and the integrity of, of a home uh, and the foundation that's required. So it's made me think a lot about uh, the language that's used in our text today as we study together in the book of Ephesians, because Paul uses a lot of language of home-oriented language, which we'll explore together. Uh, because this fall, we are moving through the book of Ephesians here in our teaching times together. And, and today, we have arrived at the midpoint of the book. This is kind of the hinge moment in Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians was really written as a letter of encouragement and teaching in the first century uh, to a group of Christ followers gathered in the ancient city of Ephesus by a man named Paul, who was one of the apostles and early leaders in the Christian movement. And Paul actually worked and lived in the city of Ephesus for two years, uh, which you can read about in Acts chapter 19. And it was actually one of, from what we know, one of the longest durations of time where Paul actually made a home with people. Normally it was quite a bit shorter than that, but he lived amongst this group of people for two years. And so later on in his ministry and in his life, he writes back to this group of early Christ followers amongst whom he lived and worked. And the theme of home or building a home comes up more than a few times in the book of Ephesians. It came up at the end of chapter two where he talks about uh, that, that God is building together a new home, a new humanity in the church. And then it now forms an important piece of Paul's thinking and instruction to us as how we're going to live together as congregations and individuals. And so I'd invite you to turn uh, with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Ephesians chapter 3 uh, in the Jericho Ridge app. There's a Bible if you need that as well. And we're going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. And we're going to go through across the hinge moment and into Ephesians 4, verse 6. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 begins... Paul saying, when I think of all this, and you might remember he started chapter 3 with that same phrase, when I think of all this, but then he got hopelessly sidetracked for 13 and a half verses, as pastors are somewhat wanton to do. And so he comes back 
to this thought again. This is when I think of all this. Now, the all this that he's talking about is everything that he's written to them about so far in chapters 1 and chapters 2. When he thinks about the context of the thanksgiving, that he pauses and prays over them. He assesses all that they have to be grateful for, all that Jesus has done for them, all the riches of what God has made available to those who trust Christ coming to life, all of the oneness and the peace and the unity that they have together as a part of God's family as a result of Jesus breaking down the dividing walls of hostility between different peoples and types of persons, all of the purpose that comes from living with a sense of mission and a sense of being valued and known by the God of the universe. So Paul says, I'm so grateful when I think about all of these things, I fall to my knees, verse 14, and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives or takes its name. So here is the heart of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, not only for them and for you and for me. And so what does he pray for us? Well, verse 16, I pray that the glorious, from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him, and your roots will go down deep into God's love and keep you strong. The core ask, or the core of this prayer that Paul makes on behalf of all who would follow Jesus is that you and I would know, not just know intellectually in our heads about God and about God's power and love, but he says, I pray that you would come to know it in an experiential way, that you would feel it, that it would be it, it's such a, something that you're at home with and that it is at home in you. And so the image that Paul drives at here is this sense of home, that our heart would be and become in an increasing way the dwelling place of the one true and mighty triune God. And before we go too much further down this track, we have to pause for a moment and just ask the question about the metaphor. What does it actually mean that Christ would make Christ's home or become increasingly at home in your heart? Now, in English, we're a little bit casual and frankly sloppy with this phrase. We, we do it all the time and we don't even think about it, oftentimes because of our evangelical heritage, if that's a tradition that you grew up in. We use phrases like, have you asked Jesus into your heart? Or we sing songs about, open the eyes of my heart. Or we say things like, Lord, I give you my heart. And we do it so often, we don't even think what we're saying, singing, or what we might be believing as a result of that. Now, in the ancient world, the, the heart meant something quite different. Not the physical organ that pumps your blood, but in ancient Jewish and Greek thinking, the heart was the essential aspect of existence and identity. It was the inner being, the will and the intelligence center. It was the real you. 
And so the heart was really shorthand for the whole of your personhood, not just sort of one of the organs of your body. And we have become, in the West and in the 21st century, so accustomed to thinking individualistically that we, it can often become quite uh, polluted for us, this phrase, because we think of things like we have pictures, an artwork that depicts a very Caucasian Jesus standing at a door, knocking, right, and asking to be let in from Revelation chapter 3. And this isn't quite what Paul is getting after here, that, that Christ would make Christ's home in your heart. In fact, most often, the New Testament actually uses quite a different phrase. Uh, in, often when Paul speaks, he speaks more often of Christians being in Christ than he does of Christ being in us or in our hearts. But he's using this image here of a home to try and drive at something important. And Probably what he's driving at is in the ancient city of Ephesus was a very important center of spiritual, spirituality in the ancient world. And it was sort of, as it were, the home for most of the ancient religions in the world. Or they all had sort of a home base there in some significant way. And so there were temples and you can see even some of the ruins of them still in existence today. And often the signage on the temple was, this is the home of Artemis, the great goddess of the Ephesians, or this is the home of such and such a god. And so Paul, as he's living and working and making his home in the city, realizes that the Ephesians are claiming, and many people are claiming, oh, this is the home where this god lives in our city as a way of signifying their importance. And Paul is saying to the Christians who follow Jesus there, mm, actually, reminder, God doesn't live in a temple made by human hands. In fact, quite the opposite, one of the most powerful and life-altering events that can ever happen to a human being is that when you open yourselves up to God and to divine love, that the God who created the universe comes to dwell and take up residence in you. And you become a home, a dwelling place for the Almighty. Christ in you, Paul says regularly in his letters, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit is alive in you and me and is a source of strength in times of trouble. Christ dwelling in your life is what allows you and I to then put down roots into the soil and establish a secure and firm home in Christ and in God's love. Because building your life on a foundation of love is the most solid foundation that you can imagine when Christ is at home in your hearts and in your lives. And so I just want to challenge you and invite you gently, if that's a new thought or a new concept for you in some way, and if you've never taken that step of actually surrendering the whole of yourself to Christ, 
becoming part of God's family, then today is that day. You can reach out to us anytime. You can email prayer at jerichoridge.com. You can speak with anyone of our team who's available for prayer response afterwards, and we'd be happy to help you begin and continue in that journey of making your life a home for Christ by the Spirit. So let's keep reading in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul continues his prayer. Most of his teaching in the first three chapters of Ephesians is actually done through prayer. And he says in verse 18, and may you, because your roots go down into God's love, keeping you strong, may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is, and may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, and then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. See, the goal of having Christ at home in your heart and in your life is not simply so that you can someday go to heaven when you die. Look again at chapter 3, verse 16. One of the things that happens when Christ takes up residence in your life is that God begins a lifelong process of empowering you to understand little by little every day, sometimes in increasing ways and sometimes in very challenging ways, what it means to experience and know the love of God. How high, how deep, how wide how immeasurable it is. And so it becomes kind of for Paul a daily kind of prayer. Jesus, today, this day, I want to actually get another little slice, a little sliver of that which is so immeasurable that I could go for the whole of my known and natural life and into eternity and not come to grasp the full knowledge and depth of it. But today I want a tiny little bit more of that which is unfathomably rich, the depth of the love of Christ and the power of God. And in our human experience, our experience of divine love can be challenging, however, because though God might be at home in your heart and in your life, you may have experiences or a state of life right now that may not allow you to experience that in full measure. You don't feel God's love. And that can be impacted by a multitude of factors that go on in our lives. It, it can be busyness. It can be unconfessed sin. Because Paul says here we actually have to learn how to allow Christ to make himself at home in our hearts. Just to like you have to actually, when you move into a new house, you have to learn how you want to arrange your furniture. We did some house rearranging this week and moved Meg's office to the upper floor and Jared's room to the basement. And so you have to do some learning as to where this goes and only got to do some rearranging at some points or learn how to fix a leaky pipe in your basement. You have to learn what makes your heart homey. And one of the ways that you can do that is just by thinking about what might be some barriers that could possibly exist to Christ being at home in my heart. Maybe there's areas of unconfessed sin that you need to pay attention to and deal with 
this morning, maybe by inviting the searching work of the Spirit of God into those corner parts of your life that maybe you've kept off limits to the Spirit. Take some time to deal with those this morning. Say, God, I I don't want to inhibit you from moving anywhere in my life. I want to give you full freedom. Maybe there's things that you're involved in that actively uh, prohibit the Spirit of God from full movement and access. Maybe there's attitudes in your life that you need to pay attention to or harboring that you hide away and that you don't want Christ to know about. One way to think about it is if you were inviting someone over for Thanksgiving dinner, how clean is your house? And what parts are you going to give them access to of your home? The parts they're going to come into are the parts you're going to clean up for them, right? Uh, And I remember uh, reading as a a young person a book by a Presbyterian minister, Robert Boyd Munger, that he wrote in 1951. And his book was entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Are any of you familiar with that book? Have you? All right, some of you have read it. It's It's quite a short read. Uh, You can find it online, maybe five minutes or so to read it, but it's stuck with me to this day. It's this idea that if you invited Christ, if you think of your life as a home, and you invited Christ into your home, your life is comprised of various rooms, and would you want Christ to visit all of those rooms of your life? What would it look like to invite Christ into each of those rooms? And, and in uh, his book, Munger talks about that he felt personally he had some stuff in the upstairs hall closet that was rotten, and that he was like, I'll give you, God, access to all of the rooms of my house, but don't go in there. And, and gently over time, Christ came to the place of saying, but it stinks, Robert. It smells. I need to take it out. I need to deal with it. And so it's a wonderful read. I'd, in, I'd commend it to you. Robert Boyd Munger, My Heart, Christ's Home. And this is really where Paul concludes his thinking in chapter 3, verse 19. And we'll come back to the benediction at the end of our gathering together this morning in verse 20 and 21. So let's move to chapter 4, verse 1. And this is really the hinge point in the book. It's where for the first three chapters, Paul has been teaching and praying theologically, and now in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he's going to move into speaking about the implications of all the things that now he has talked about and are true of their lives. And so, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he begins and says, Therefore, I, as a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So Paul's now into, real quickly, the practical implications of the outworking of a theology of unity and inviting Christ to be and live at home in our lives and in our hearts. And so this is the question that he's going to chase down for all of the rest of this. He's going to begin to ask things like, how does that actually impact your parenting? How does it impact your finances? How does it impact your work relationships? How does it impact a marriage or your singleness? And the start of the answer to that question is he continues his thinking about how does it impact our relationship with one another in God's new family, the church. 
And if Christ, he says, is increasingly at home in your heart, what is the evidence of that? And the evidence of it is that you're going to be increasing in gentleness, increasing in patience, increasing in your opportunities to learn to make allowances for the faults and the flaws of other people. Because we've spoken about this already, but it bears repeating, in God's diverse family, people will rub you the wrong way. People will feel deeply and differently about non-core things than you do. And we're seeing this, I think, play out more and more and more today, friends. And it, it is kind of concerning. In a recent article in the October uh, MB Herald, our denominational online magazine, Phil Gunther, he's a leader in Saskatchewan, he says, one of the great dangers of our time is, quote, ideological polarization will intensify while forbearance and grace evaporate. If that isn't a descriptor of what we see playing out in real time in our social media feeds, in even family table conversations at Thanksgiving. And friends, it's very, very possible that we are living in and through a season where we will experience fracturing like never before, where churches and families will divide along ideological lines and that people will leave faith communities not because Jesus isn't being priest, but, but because it doesn't align with their personal preferences. And so this is where Paul goes next. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, we need to make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through and these last two verses, if you notice, some of you in your Bible might have them offset from the rest of the text. And they're actually, uh, we believe, the scholars believe, an ancient poem, a kind of catechetical phrase, a teaching phrase, that when you came to be part of God's family, this was one of the first things that you memorized and committed to obedience for, of understanding that always keeping in front of you some of the main and most important things. That yes, you're going to go about your business if you're a part of a house church in the city of Ephesus. You'll go out into the city and you'll meet other people who are part of other house churches and they may do it differently than you do, but you're part of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Father over all. And the tension that we have to wrestle with in this text, as we wrestle with in other parts of the New Testament is, all right then, so what part is God's part in all of this grand project, and what part is our part in this? And there is a division of labor. Who's, so the question to ask is, whose job is it? When it comes to unity, whose job is it? And the answer really is twofold. In terms of the creation of unity, that is God's job. God, by God's Spirit, has created everything necessary for it is a unity of the Spirit created by God, one 
on the cross through the work and the saving work of Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul says there is one body, Christ's family, one spirit. You and I didn't wake up somehow and make unity happen when we came to be a part of Team Jesus. That existed before and will continue into all of eternity. And so that part is done. God's job is to create the unity. But you and I do have a part to play, and our part is to maintain unity. We have to do our part to fight for it. We have to do our part to guard it, lest it slip away. We have to choose to continue to keep ourselves united in the Spirit around these truths by, going back another verse, practicing gentleness, humility, patience, and forbearance with each other. And here's kind of the crazy part about this. We, in the 21st century, we are so used and accustomed to divisions within the house of God globally and historically that that does not even strike us as odd or unusual. We're like, well, whatever, there's just difference. Well, we've got Roman Catholics, we've got Orthodoxes, we've got Protestants, and then since the Reformation uh, in the 16th century, we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of groups, and then in the 19th and the 20th centuries with the rise of individualism and the breakdown of national churches over time, we have literally thousands upon 10,000s of groups who have hived off from one another around ideological identity or doctrinal purity or ethnic lines or whatever it might be. And so sometimes, when we think about God's one family, you might meet someone from God's family, and it's like a distant relative coming over from Thanksgiving, and you think, uh, they're really weird. Are you sure we're related? And it can be actually, for us, difficult to recognize the unity of the Spirit because of the diversity that exists in God's family. We have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. I like what, uh, in his commentary on this passage, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says. He says, quote, unless we are working to maintain, defend, and develop the unity that we already enjoy and to overcome and demolish and put behind us the disunity we still find ourselves in, we, we claim Paul's teaching. We have to work at it. Now, there are times when churches and individuals when the breaking of that unity of the Spirit happens. Are there times sometimes when we find ourselves out of step where we need to submit to loving correction? Absolutely. But the one thing that I want to challenge us to, Jericho, is to always keep asking the question, is this a group or is this group that I'm about to criticize online or about, I'm about to gripe about as I pass the turkey at Thanksgiving, are they part of the family? Does the Holy Spirit reside in them? Will I share eternity with them? Granted, their part of the eternal home might be in a different section than yours and you might be grateful for that in some way. But are they part of the family of faith? Have they experienced baptism, regardless of when they're in their life and their journey and how the water was applied to them? 
If yes to these questions, proceed immediately to the part where you treat them like family. Will you agree with them on everything? No. You don't agree with your own family members about everything. But you have a responsibility to make every effort to keep yourself united to and with them. Because you are children of the same Father. You call upon the same Lord. You are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. Yes, they do things differently than you. They do communion differently than you. They dress or worship or pray differently than you. Yes, they might believe different things about healing or about faith or about finances than you do. But your job as a fellow family member is to maintain and work at the unity that God has created by and through the Spirit. You walk with them in a spirit of peace. And you and I both know that this is harder the more difference exists within that relationship, which is just like family and family coming over for Thanksgiving. My folks are traveling uh, this week and they were up north visiting some relatives and I was debriefing with them and they said, oh, we found out yet again, even though we were in business together for years and years, even though we've known them, you know, for how many years and lived in the same city for decades and decades, there are still some topics that you just don't bring up in order to maintain a sense of unity and peace in the family. But you break bread together and you focus on the long, long, long list of things that you do have in common and that you do love each other. So the worship in song team is coming and they're gonna lead us in response to our scripture this morning. And so one of the questions to ask yourself is this, what part of God's family do you have the hardest time getting along with? Maybe it's a person that immediately springs to your mind. Someone maybe here at, at Jericho who's just different than you and maybe you've rubbed each other the wrong way at some point. Maybe it's other people or a different church or a different style of worship or whatever it is. What part of God's family do you have the hardest time getting along with? Just ask God to do a work in you, to soften your heart, to give you grace to relate to them with patience, with forbearance, with wisdom, and with love. And one of the things that you could try would be just doing a little bit of learning about them. Maybe try exploring some of the things, either relationally or just in a learning posture online about that person or group. Maybe learn about another part of God's family so that you can appreciate both the distinctive differences but also the long, long, long list of things that unite you and that you have in common. So one example of this is the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada has an online resource about things that Protestants and Catholics here in Canada should be working on and thinking about together in unity. You might want to look that up. We're moving into a time of responding to God in worship, in song, and in prayer. And maybe today you just came with something that's heavy on your heart. And so today, Anne-Marie and Constance and Katie will be available at the back for prayer, and you can also submit your prayer need or prayer request to us at prayer at jerichoridge.com. You can take some time 
for personal reflection and repentance as needed. Maybe take some time to invite God to unite you more deeply with other people, others here at Jericho Ridge who follow Christ and who worship, maybe who are neighbors or coworkers. We're following and serving one God, one Lord. We have professed together one faith. We share in one baptism. And so I would invite you to, if you're able, stand with me and we're going to share and respond to God's love. And as we sing this next song, and as you stand, I invite you to picture yourself surrounded by people from every nationality, every ethnic group, every kind of Christian group imaginable, raising our voices to the King of kings and Lord of lords in a great hymn and song of thanksgiving where we're singing about the one faith to our one Father who is over all and living all and through all. Let's stand and worship together, church.